Part 2, Chapter 4, Section 3 of Some Do Not by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 4, Section 3. The old lady, with her dim eyes, looked up at the younger woman towering above her. You're Christopher's wife, she said. I must kiss you for all the kindness he has shown me. Valentine felt her eyes filling with tears. She saw her mother stand up, place both her hands on the other woman's shoulders. She heard her mother say, You're a most beautiful creature. I'm sure you're good. Sylvia stood, smiling faintly, bending a little to accept the embrace. Behind the McMasters, Teachins and the staff officers, a little crowd of goggle eyes had ranged itself. Valentine was crying. She slipped back behind the tea-urns, though she could hardly feel the way. Beautiful. The most beautiful woman she had ever seen. And good. Kind. You could see it in the lovely way she had given her cheek to that poor old woman's lips. And to live all day, forever, beside him. She, Valentine, ought to be ready to lay down her life for Sylvia Teachin's. The voice of Teachin said just above her head, Your mother seems to be having a regular triumph. And with his good-natured cynicism, he added, It seems to have upset some apple carts. They were confronted with the spectacle of McMaster conducting the young celebrity from her deserted armchair across the room to be lost in the horseshoe of crowd that surrounded Mrs. Wannup. Valentine said, You're quite gay today. Your voice is different. I suppose you're better? She did not look at him. His voice came. Yes, I'm relatively gay. It went on. I thought you might like to know. A little of my mathematical brain seems to have come to life again. I've worked out two or three silly problems. She said, Mrs. Teachins will be pleased. Oh, the answer came. Mathematics doesn't interest her any more than cockfighting. With immense swiftness between word and word, Valentine read into that a hope. This splendid creature did not sympathise with her husband's activities. But he crushed it heavily by saying, Why should she? She's so many occupations of her own that she's unrivalled at. He began to tell her rather minutely of a calculation he had made only that day at lunch. He had gone into the Department of Statistics and had had rather a row with Lord Ingleby of Lincoln. A pretty title the fellow had taken. They had wanted him to ask to be seconded to his old department for a certain job, but he said he'd be damned if he would. He detested and despised the work they were doing. Valentine, for the first time in her life, hardly listened to what he said. Did the fact that Sylvia Teachins had so many occupations of her own mean that Teachins found her unsympathetic? Of their relationship she knew nothing. Sylvia had been so much of a mystery as hardly to exist as a problem hitherto. McMaster Valentine knew hated her. She knew that through Mrs. Dusherman. She had heard it ages ago, but she didn't know why Sylvia had never come to the McMaster afternoons. But that was natural. 
McMaster passed for a bachelor, and it was excusable for a young woman of the highest fashion not to come to bachelor teas of literary and artistic people. On the other hand, McMaster dined at the Teachings quite often enough to make it public that he was a friend of that family. Sylvia, too, had never come down to see Mrs. Wanup. But then it would, in the old days, have been a long way to come for a lady of fashion with no especial literary interests and no one in mercy could have been expected to call on poor them in their dog-kennel in an outer suburb. They had had to sell almost all their pretty things. Teachens was saying that after his tempestuous interview with Lord Ingleby of Lincoln, she wished he would not be so rude to powerful people, he had dropped in on McMaster in his private room, and finding him puzzled over a lot of figures, had, in the merest spirit of bravado, taken McMaster and his papers out to lunch. And, he said, chancing to look without any hope at all at the figures, he had suddenly worked out an ingenious mystification. It had just come. His voice had been so gay and triumphant that she hadn't been able to resist looking up at him. His cheeks were fresh-coloured, his hair shining, his blue eyes had a little of their old arrogance and tenderness. Her heart seemed to sing with joy. He was, she felt, her man. She imagined the arms of his mind stretching out to enfold her. He went on explaining. He had, rather, in his recovered self-confidence, jibed at McMaster. Between themselves, wasn't it easy to do what the department under orders wanted done? They had wanted to rub into our allies that their losses by devastation had been nothing to write home about, so as to avoid sending reinforcements to their lines. Well, if you took just the bricks and mortar of the devastated districts, you could prove that the loss in bricks, tiles, woodwork and the rest didn't, and the figures with a little manipulation would prove it, amount to more than a normal year's dilapidation spread over the whole country in peacetime. House repairs in a normal year had cost several million sterling. The enemy had only destroyed just about so many million sterling in bricks and mortar. And what was a mere year's dilapidations in house property? You just neglected to do them and did them next year. So, if you ignored the lost harvests of three years, the lost industrial output of the richest industrial region of the country, the smashed machinery, the barked fruit trees, the three years loss of four and a half tenths of the coal output for three years, and the loss of life, we could go to our allies and say, all your yappings about losses are the merest bulls. You can perfectly well afford to reinforce the weak places of your own lines. We intend to send our new troops to the Near East, where lies our true interest. And though they might sooner or later point out the fallacy, you would, by so much, have put off the abhorrent expedient of a single command. Valentine, though it took her away from her own thoughts, couldn't help saying, But weren't you arguing against your own convictions? He said, Yes, of course I was, in the lightness of my heart. It's always a good thing to formulate the other fellow's objections. She had turned half round in her chair. They were gazing into each other's eyes, he from above, she from below. She had no doubt of his love. He, she knew, could have no doubt of hers. She said, 
but isn't it dangerous to show these people how to do it? He said, oh no, 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 you don't know what a good soul little Vinny is. I don't think you've ever been quite just to Vincent McMaster. He'd as soon think of picking my pocket as of picking my brains, the soul of honour. Valentine had felt a queer, queer sensation. She was not sure afterwards whether she had felt it before she had realised that Sylvia Teachens was looking at them. She stood there very erect, a queer smile on her face. Valentine could not be sure whether it was kind, cruel, or merely distantly ironic, but she was perfectly sure it showed whatever was behind it, that its wearer knew all that there was to know of her. Valentine's feelings for Tietjens and for Tietjens' feelings for her. It was like being a woman and man in adultery in Trafalgar Square. Behind Sylvia's back, their mouths agape, were the two staff officers. Their dark hairs were too untidy for them to amount to much, but such as they were, they were the two most presentable males of the assembly, and Sylvia had snuffled them. Mrs. Teachin said, Oh, Christopher, I'm going on to Basil's. Teachin said, All right, I'll pop Mrs. Wanup into the tube as soon as she's had enough of it and come along and pick you up. Sylvia had just drooped her long eyelashes, a sign of salutation, to Valentine Wanup and had drifted through the door, followed by her rather unmilitary military escort in khaki and scarlet. From that moment, Valentine Wanup never had any doubt. She knew that Sylvia Teachens knew that her husband loved her, Valentine Wanup, and that she, Valentine Wanup, loved her husband with a passion absolute and ineffable. The one thing she, Valentine, didn't know, the one mystery that remained impenetrable, was whether Sylvia Teachens was good to her husband. A long time afterwards, Edith Ethel had come to her beside the teacups and had apologised for not having known earlier than Sylvia's demonstration that Mrs. Wanup was in the room. She hoped that they might see Mrs. Wanup much more often. She added, after a moment, that she hoped Mrs. Wanup wouldn't in future find it necessary to come under the escort of Mr. Teachens. They were too old friends for that, surely. Valentine said, Look here, Ethel, if you think that you can keep friends with Mother and turn on Mrs. Teachens after all he's done for you, you're mistaken. You are, really. And Mother's a great deal of influence. I don't want to see you making any mistakes just at this juncture. It's a mistake to make nasty rows, and you'd make a very nasty one if you said anything against Mr. Teachens to Mother. She knows a great deal. Remember, she lived next door to the rectory for a number of years, and she's got a dreadfully incisive tongue. Edith Ethel coiled back on her feet as if her whole body were threaded by a steel spring. Her mouth opened, but she bit her lower lip and then wiped it with a very white handkerchief. She said, I hate that man. I detest that man. I shudder when he comes near me. I know you do, Valentine Wanup answered but I wouldn't let other people know it if I were you. It doesn't do you any real credit. He's a good man. Edith Ethel looked at her with a long, calculating glance. Then she went to stand before the fireplace. 
That had been five, or at most six, Fridays before Valentine sat with Mark Teachens in the war office waiting hall, and on the Friday immediately before that again, all the guests being gone, Edith Ethel had come to the tea-table and, with her velvet kindness, had placed her right hand on Valentine's left. Admiring the gesture with a deep fervour, Valentine knew that that was the end. Three days before, on the Monday, Valentine, in her school uniform, in a great store to which she had gone to buy athletic paraphernalia, had run into Mrs. Dusherman, who was buying flowers. Mrs. Dusherman had been horribly distressed to observe the costume. She had said, But do you go about in that? It's really dreadful. Valentine had answered, Oh yes, when I'm doing business for the school in school hours, I'm expected to wear it. And I wear it if I'm going anywhere in a hurry after school hours. It saves my dresses. I haven't got too many. But anyone might meet you, Edith Ethel said in a note of agony. It's very inconsiderate. Don't you think you've been very inconsiderate? You might meet any of the people who come to our Fridays. I frequently do, Valentine said, but they don't seem to mind. Perhaps they think I'm a whack officer. That would be quite respectable. Mrs. Dusherman drifted away, her arms full of flowers and real agony upon her face. Now, beside the tea-table, she said very softly, My dear, we've decided not to have our usual Friday afternoon next week. Valentine wondered whether this was merely a lie to get rid of her, but Edith Ethel went on, We've decided to have a little evening festivity. After a great deal of thought, we've come to the conclusion that we ought now to make our union public. She paused to await comment, but Valentine making none, she went on, It coincides very happily, I can't help feeling it coincides very happily, with another event, not that we set much store by these things, but it has been whispered to Vincent that next Friday... Perhaps, my dear Valentine, you too will have heard. Valentine said, no, I haven't. I suppose he's got the OBE. I'm very glad. The Sovereign, Mrs. Dusherman said, is seeing fit to confer the honour of knighthood on him. Well, Valentine said, he's had a quick career. I've no doubt he deserves it. He's worked very hard. I do sincerely congratulate you. It'll be a great help to you. It's, Mrs. Dusherman said, not for mere plodding. That's what makes it so gratifying. It's for a special piece of brilliance that has marked him out. It's, of course, a secret, but... Oh, I know, Valentine said. He's worked out some calculations to prove that losses in the devastated districts, if you ignore machinery, coal output, orchard trees, harvest, industrial products and so on, don't amount to more than a year's household dilapidations for the... Mrs. Dusherman said with real horror. But how did you know? How on earth did you know? She paused. It's such a dead secret. That fellow must have told you. But how on earth could he know? I haven't seen Mr. Teachens to speak to since the last time he was here, Valentine said. She saw from Edith Ethel's bewilderment the whole situation. 
the miserable McMaster hadn't even confided to his wife that the practically stolen figures weren't his own. He desired to have a little prestige in the family circle, for once a little prestige. Well, why shouldn't he have it? Teachin, she knew, would wish him to have all he could get. She said, therefore, Oh, it's probably in the air. It's known the government want to break their claims to the higher command, and anyone who could help them to that would get a knighthood. Mrs. Dusherman was more calm. It certainly, she said, burked, as you call it, those beastly people. She reflected for a moment. It's probably that, she went on. It's in the air. Anything that can help to influence public opinion against those horrible people is to be welcomed. That's known pretty widely. No, it could hardly be Christopher Teachens who thought of it and told you. It wouldn't enter his head. He's their friend. He wouldn't be. He's certainly, Valentine said, not a friend of his country's enemies. I'm not myself. Mrs. Dusherman exclaimed sharply, her eyes dilated. What do you mean? What on earth do you dare to mean? I thought you were a pro-German. Valentine said, I'm not. I'm not. I hate men's deaths. I hate any men's deaths. Any men. She calmed herself by main force. Mr. Teachin says that the more we hinder our allies, the more we drag the war on and the more lives are lost. More lives, do you understand? Mrs. Dusherman assumed her most aloof, tender and high air. My poor child, she said, what possible concern can the opinions of that broken fellow cause anyone? You can warn him from me that he does himself no good by going on uttering these discredited opinions. He's a marked man. Finished. It's no good, Guggams, my husband, trying to stand up for him. He does stand up for him, Valentine asked. Though I don't see why it's needed, Mr. Teachens is surely able to take care of himself. My good child, Edith Ethel said, you may as well know the worst. There's not a more discredited man in London than Christopher Teachens, and my husband does himself infinite harm in standing up for him. It's our one quarrel. She went on again. It was all very well whilst that fellow had brains. He was said to have some intellect, though I could never see it. But now that with his drunkenness and debaucheries he's got himself into the state he is in, for there's no other way of accounting for his condition, they're striking him, I don't mind telling you, off the roll of his office. It was there that, for the first time, the thought went through Valentine Wannup's mind like a mad inspiration. This woman must at some time have been in love with Teachens. It was possible, men being what they were, that she had even once been Teachens' mistress. For it was impossible otherwise to account for this spite which to Valentine seemed almost meaningless. She had, on the other hand, no impulse to defend Teachens against accusations that could not have any possible ground. Mrs. Dusherman was going on with her kind loftiness. Of course, a fellow like that, in that condition, could not understand matters of high policy. It is imperative that these fellows should not have the higher command. It would pander to their insane spirit of militarism. They must be hindered. I'm talking, of course, between ourselves, but my husband says that that is the conviction in the very highest circles. 
To let them have their way, even if it led to earlier success, would be to establish a precedent, so my husband says, compared with which the loss of a few lives... Valentine sprang up, her face distorted. For the sake of Christ, she cried out, as you believe that Christ died for you, try to understand that millions of men's lives are at stake. Mrs. Dusherman smiled. My poor child, she said, if you moved in the higher circles, you would look at these things with more aloofness. Valentine leant on the back of a high chair for support. You don't move in the higher circles, she said, for heaven's sake, for your own. Remember that you are a woman, not for ever and for always, a snob. You were a good woman once. You stuck to your husband for quite a long time. Mrs. Dusherman in her chair had thrown herself back. My good girl, she said, have you gone mad? Valentine said, yes, very nearly. I've got a brother at sea. I've had a man I loved out there for an infinite time. You can understand that, I suppose, even if you can't understand how one can go mad merely at the thought of suffering at all. And I know, Edith Ethel, that you are afraid of my opinion of you, or you wouldn't have put up all the subterfuges and concealments of all these years. Mrs. Dusherman said quickly, Oh, my good girl, if you've got personal interests at stake, you can't be expected to take abstract views of the higher matters. We had better change the subject. Valentine said, Yes, do. Get on with your excuses for not asking me and mother to your knighthood party. Mrs. Dusherman, too, rose at that. She felt at her amber beads with long fingers that turned very slightly at the tips. She had behind her all her mirrors, the drops of her lustres, shining points of gilt, and the polish of dark woods. Valentine thought that she had never seen anyone so absolutely impersonate kindness, tenderness, and dignity. She said, my dear, I was going to suggest that it was the sort of party to which you might not care to come. The people will be stiff and formal, and you probably haven't got a frock. Valentine said, Oh, I've got a frock all right, but there's a Jacob's ladder in my party stockings, and that's the sort of laddie you can't kick down. She couldn't help saying that. Mrs. Dusherman stood motionless, and very slowly redness mounted into her face. It was most curious to see, against that scarlet background, the vivid white of the eyes and the dark, straight eyebrows that nearly met. And slowly again her face went perfectly white, then her dark blue eyes became marked. She seemed to wipe her long white hands, one in the other, inserting her right hand into her left and drawing it out again. I'm sorry, she said in a dead voice. We had hoped that if that man went to France, or if other things happened, we might have continued on the old friendly footing. But you yourself must see that, with our official position, we can't be expected to connive, Valentine said. I don't understand. Perhaps you'd rather I didn't go on, Mrs. Dusherman retorted. I'd much rather not go on. You'd probably better, Valentine answered. We had meant, the older woman said, to have a quiet little dinner, we two and you, before the party, for old Lang Syne. But that fellow has forced himself in, and you see for yourself that we can't have you as well. 
Valentine said, I don't see why not. I always like to see Mr. Teachens. Mrs. Dusherman looked hard at her. I don't see the use, she said, of your keeping on that mask. It is surely bad enough that your mother should go about with that man and that terrible scenes like that of the other Friday should occur. Mrs. Teachens was heroic, nothing less than heroic, but you have no right to subject us, your friends, to such ordeals. Valentine said, you mean Mrs. Christopher Teachens? Mrs. Dusherman went on, my husband insists that I should ask you, but I will not. I simply will not. I invented for you the excuse of the frock. Of course we could have given you a frock if that man is so mean or so penniless as not to keep you decent. But I repeat, with our official position we cannot, we cannot, it would be madness, connive at this intrigue. And all the more as the wife appears likely to be friendly with us. She has been once, she may well come again. She paused and went on solemnly. And I warn you, if the split comes, as it must, for what woman could stand it, it is Mrs. Teachens we shall support. She will always find a home here. An extraordinary picture of Sylvia Teachens standing beside Edith Ethel and dwarfing her as a giraffe dwarfs an emu came into Valentine's head. She said, Ethel, have I gone mad or is it you? Upon my word, I can't understand, Mrs. Dusherman exclaimed. For God's sake, hold your tongue, you shameless thing. You've had a child by the man, haven't you? Valentine saw suddenly the tall silver candlesticks, the dark polished panels of the rectory, and Edith Ethel's mad face and mad hair whirling before them. She said, no, I certainly haven't. Can you get that into your head? I certainly haven't. She made a further effort over immense fatigue. I assure you, I beg you to believe it, if it will give you any ease, that Mr. Teachens has never addressed a word of love to me in his life, nor have I to him. We have hardly talked to each other in all the time we have known each other. Mrs. Dusherman said in a harsh voice, Seven people in the last five weeks have told me you have had a child by that brute beast. He's ruined because he has to keep you and your mother and the child. You won't deny that he has a child somewhere hidden away. Valentine exclaimed suddenly, Oh, Ethel, you mustn't. You mustn't be jealous of me. If you only knew, you wouldn't be jealous of me. I suppose the child you were going to have was by Christopher? Men are like that, but not of me. You need never, never... I've been the best friend you can ever have had. Mrs. Dusherman exclaimed harshly as if she were being strangled. A sort of blackmail. I knew it would come to that. It always does with your sort. Then do your damnedest, you harlot. You never set foot in this house again. Go you and rot. Her face suddenly expressed extreme fear and with great swiftness she ran up the room. Immediately afterwards she was tenderly bending over a great bowl of roses beneath the luster. The voice of Vincent McMaster from the door had said, Come in, old man, of course I've got ten minutes. The book's in here somewhere. McMaster was beside her, rubbing his hands, bending with his curious, rather abject manner, and surveying her agonisedly with his eyeglass, which enormously magnified his lashes. 
his red lower lid and the veins of his cornea. Valentine, he said, my dear Valentine, you've heard? We've decided to make it public. Guggams will have invited you to our little feast, and there will be a surprise, I believe. Edith Ethel looked as she bent lamentably and sharply over her shoulder at Valentine. Yes, she said bravely, aiming her voice at Edith Ethel. Ethel has invited me. I'll try to come. Oh, but you must, McMaster said. Just you and Christopher, who've been so kind to us, for old time's sake. You could not... Christopher Teachens was ballooning slowly from the door, his hand tentatively held out to her. As they practically never shook hands at home, it was easy to avoid his hand. She said to herself, Oh, how is it possible? How could he have? And the terrible situation poured itself over her mind. The miserable little husband, the desperately nonchalant lover, and Edith Ethel mad with jealousy. A doomed household. She hoped Edith Ethel had seen her refuse her hand to Christopher. But Edith Ethel, bent over her rose bowl, was burying her beautiful face in flower after flower. She was accustomed to do this for many minutes on end. She thought that, so, she resembled a picture by the subject of her husband's first little monograph. And so, Valentine thought, she did. She was trying to tell McMaster that Friday evenings were difficult times for her to get away, but her throat ached too much. That, she knew, was her last sight of Edith Ethel, whom she had loved very much. That also, she hoped, would be her last sight of Christopher Teachens, whom also she had loved very much. He was browsing along a bookshelf, very big and very clumsy. McMaster pursued her into the stony hall with clamorous repetitions of his invitation. She couldn't speak. At the great iron-lined door, he held her hand for an eternity, gazing lamentably, his face close up against hers. He exclaimed in accents of great fear, Has Gugums? She hasn't. His face, which when you saw it so closely was a little blotched, distorted itself with anxiety. He glanced aside with panic at the drawing-room door. Valentine burst a voice through her agonised throat. Ethel, she said, has told me she's to be Lady McMaster. I'm so glad, I'm so truly glad for you. You've got what you wanted, haven't you? His relief let him get out distractedly, yet as if he were too tired to be any more agitated. Yes, yes, it's of course a secret. I don't want him told till Friday next, so as to be a sort of bon bouche. He's practically certain to go out again on Saturday. They're sending out a great batch of them for the big push. At that she tried to draw her hand from his. She missed what he was saying. It was something to the effect that he would give it all for a happy little party. She caught the rather astonishing words, Wie der alten Schernenzeit. She couldn't tell whether it was his or her eyes that were full of tears. She said, I believe, I believe you're a kind man. In the great stone hall, hung with long Japanese paintings on silk, the electric light suddenly jumped. It was, at best, a sad brown place. He exclaimed, I too beg you to believe that I will never abandon. He glanced again at the inner door and added, You both, 
I will never abandon you both, he repeated. He let go her hand. She was on the stone stairs in the damp air. The great door closed irresistibly behind her, sending a whisper of air downwards. End of part two, chapter four, section three.